0: Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder, and this is our end-of-the-year holiday special. Uh, We do have two real quick things for you, uh, and I'm going to be quick because we all have things to do, presents to wrap, drinks to drink, family to see, holidays to celebrate, and all that. We have two quick interviews for you guys today. One is from Dr. Josh Lupton out in Oregon. Um, he goes over some of the studies that he's done out there, uh, and we talk about the amount of people that might be ideal in a cardiac arrest type of setting, something that we've talked about in EMS, and maybe something that we don't focus on enough. Uh, it's possible that we don't have enough people uh, to our crew complement. And then to follow that, we have Dr. Ken Milne from Canada, from the Skeptic's Guide of Emergency Medicine. He is going to talk to us about one study he thought might change practice. Um, the outcomes were, uh, you can interpret them at the end of the study, uh, but it certainly might uh, change the way that we look at CPR. So it was a really exciting conversation. We're always happy to have him. I just want to say thank you all for listening to our show this year. Uh, we know we've reached out to a lot of you. We've heard a lot from all of you. We're happy to hear from all of you. Please keep reaching out, subscribe to the podcast wherever you find it, and all that stuff. Um, I can tell you that we have a lot of things that we're looking forward to in 2023 and 2024. We hope that you'll come along with us. Thanks for listening to us so far. I'll turn it over to Josh and to Ken, and we will see you all in 2023. All right. Hey, everybody. I've got Dr. Josh Lupton from Oregon with us here today. And Dr. Lupton has been a fairly prolific author over the past couple of years as it pertains to cardiac arrest data. So, Dr. Lupton, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: So we've talked a lot about uh, how we treat cardiac arrest on this show, and I, I want to get just kind of a general overall opinion of how you feel we're doing, uh, as, as a culture in medicine, uh, treating cardiac arrest. And then I want to get into your study, um, which talked about the ideal number of rescuers for cardiac arrest. So overall, do you feel that we're doing as, as healthcare, uh, writ large, do you feel that we're doing a sufficient job with treating cardiac arrest patients?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's tough to say, I think within the context of the the evidence that we have, I think we're trying our best shot at it, but I think it's, it's a difficult Condition to study. I mean, it's such a um, sort of rare, but also uh, across the United States, common phenomenon that makes it hard to do interventions. You have to do trials with exception from consent. And so, as a result, the evidence base is fairly small. And I think only recently have these sort of multi network observational cohorts or interventional trials sort of came around to try to say, you know, what we thought was helpful, maybe not be as helpful, and things that we you know, have never looked at before actually might be more important to sort of outcomes for patients. So um, I I, I hate to say we're doing a bad job, but clearly there's areas in the country where survival is much higher than other areas in the country. And so, you know, really the objective of of us as researchers and and those kind of putting forth policies is to see like, what are they doing there correctly? And how do we, you know, figure out an evidence-based way to roll that out across the United States?
0: Are you of the mind that the outcomes that we have for cardiac arrest are more of a function of the patients already experienced a mortal injury or wound, and thus our success rates tend to be below 10%, or do you think that's more of a function of provider skills and algorithms, or do you think it's kind of somewhere in the middle there?
1: Yeah, it's probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, I think certainly there's probably a subset of patients, particularly those with unwitnessed arrests who may have asystole when EMS gets there, and we don't know how long they were down you know, there's probably a significant portion that no matter what is done across the board, those patients are are not going to have a good outcome, in which case, you know, including that group in, in trials is somewhat controversial or looking at interventions in that group may not be beneficial. But certainly there's another subset of patients who have either witness arrests or, you know, maybe it's unwitnessed, but they have a shockable rhythm or, you know, a PEA at a reasonable rate or some sort of, uh Evidence that there's something to, to salvage there, and I think in those patients, um, certainly the care we do matters. And there's probably, you know, when we think of what's going to be 20 years from now, there's probably other interventions we haven't thought of or optimizing interventions we currently do that will improve those outcomes. And I think, you know, the the goal is is obviously not everyone can have an EMS sort of witness arrest, but clearly in that population, um, you know, in a perfect world, everyone with a shockable witness arrest would survive, or at least a high proportion would.
0: Yeah and I I tend to think that there's obviously we're never going to get back to you know to anywhere close to 100% you know save rate or you know right. 100% survivability um you know life being a terminal condition as it is we're certainly just going to see people who will expire and stay expired um right. when the when the care study came out in a, I mean now we're looking at you know 12 years ago we saw that our survival rate was about 8% nationwide and i think it tends to hold um and you know there's always going to be sort of this this niche culture that's going to try and find ways to improve that number. Um, You know, unfortunately I don't know that it's ever going to cross, you know, 15% nationwide. And then you also have, you know, you have outlier projects like Seattle, which, you know, our, our friends up there in the Pacific Northwest are always going to have remarkably high numbers because of the system that they've built. Um, But I did want to talk to you today about this paper that you put out in uh, 2021. So give us us a little bit of your background um, and what, what, I guess, what caused you to decide to run this study? Um, This will be in the show notes, but this is out of pre-hospital emergency care. This is the association between the number of pre-hospital providers on scene and out of hospital cardiac arrest outcomes.
1: Yeah. So uh, our, our sort of interest in this study came from, a desire to look at these large data sets. So this used this ROC, um epistry, which is this large observational cohort across multiple sites in North America, really was the infrastructure for a lot of trials like the ALPS trial or the PAR trial, these things in cardiac arrest. Um, but they also had this observational cohort sort of going along. And so our goal was to, in recognizing the value of that data set and how hard it is to research in the context of cardiac arrest, Um, try to look at some of the fundamental unknown questions for a cardiac arrest patient. And so when I think about, you know, the research we need to do for a cardiac arrest patient, you you think of it starting from the moment of arrest to them calling 911. And this comes into, you know, systems to improve the accuracy of dispatch at appropriate levels for potential cardiac arrest patient, which several folks are doing research on that. But then we really don't know these questions of like, does it improve survival? you know, does dispatching more, people to a cardiac arrest, improve outcomes, how many people should we dispatch and how do you then allocate resources sort of in that way? Particularly as you think about communities where, you know, if you ever have to make the choice of advocating for more funding for more uh, of an EMS system, you know, you have to balance that to other costs, you know, and and, uh, that was part of our interest in looking at this And, and it gets into these other fundamental questions, you know, does it help to dispatch police or law enforcement to a cardiac arrest, you know, uh, those sorts of things. So we uh, got interested in it and then took a look and um, sort of uh, for these data sets, you can get them, they're publicly available if you have a reasonable proposal. And sort of our proposal is to look based on these different tiers of number of uh, providers on scene what the ultimate outcomes were. And of course, our hypothesis was that there would be a certain threshold, um, but what we didn't know is if it would be like a sort of dose response where the more the better with no clear plateau, or if, you know, once you reached five people on scene, it would be better or whatnot. And obviously there's lots of reasons why more might be better, you know, particularly if you're doing manual CPR, you have more people to sort of switch in and out. Um, But if you're doing airway and access and drugs and having someone there just to coordinate all of this and the timing, um, you know, perhaps that would be helpful too. So I think it's sort of logically fit, but no one had really looked at it, particularly in, in the last,
0: you know, decade. So you went back and looked over the uh, the Rock Consortium numbers, and what were some of the? I, I guess my question, whenever I talk to someone who does research, is I'm I'm interested in what was the most interesting thing that you found, uh, like what was what was personally interesting to you, um, and then what did you what did you find in this data set that you thought might actually be practice changing? Just you know, the, the papers published day of, and the next day, what can we start to work toward making the system better?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the the. Uh, of, of a lot of the research that we do, where we, you know, ideally you go into it with a, a plan and a hypothesis and, and try to be as, as non-biased as you can. A lot of times there's a, a negative result, or maybe there's something a little bit surprising there, or it's it's not as significant. You know, I think this was one where our, our hunch going in was that more would probably have better outcomes. And so I think um, in some ways we were we were surprised to see sort of this dose response curve where it seemed like uh, without limit the more providers on scene you know the better association with odds of survival or functional outcome in the group that had that uh, as variables so I think the exciting thing for us is that you know it's easy to just take that and say well what does that mean you know we we sort of we will try in our system to dispatch wherever we can it's it's tough to sort of generalize that and I think one aspect that is is hopefully an option for agencies to use is this really an app and, an area to advocate for adequate sort of staffing and funding like clearly if more on scene is better you know now you have an evidence-based published article saying that like you know we can't dispatch sort of a bare bones you know set of units to uh, a potential cardiac arrest patient because it really does sort of have this association with people surviving or not surviving and I think the other sort of part of that is is if there are these differences by number on scene, well, what could we modify for that? And so I think for me, that's the interesting part is, well, what if we look at uh, dispatching law enforcement? You know, is it is it the fact that you dispatch more people, or is it just that they have more units driving from different areas and they're more likely to have somebody get there first? And that's the sort of benefit. And if you dispatch a law enforcement unit, because that Make it so you don't have to dispatch another, you know, four-person or whatever engine or something that's that's perhaps more of a cost-effective balance. So that's an interesting aspect. And then the other would be: does this go away in a, uh, a, a time when you have better, like, or higher proportion of mechanical CPR use or sort of these other adjuncts? So, for instance, we're trying to look at it in our current region of what if you have mechanical CPR, does that then sort of negate some of these differences you see based on the number of providers that are on scene? And then is that another area to say, you know, advocate for for use of that as a um, intervention or perhaps mechanical CPR, which hasn't really been shown to be beneficial. Maybe that was because it was in these high functioning study sort of EMS agencies when it was studied and they had so many people on scene, it was very easy to keep up high quality CPR for 30 minutes of resuscitation whereas that's not the case if you're, you know, somewhere more rural that has less resources. So I think that was sort of our exciting thing was, you know, here's a few different directions that this could sort of go in the future. And then we're also trying to look at, um, you know, what is this, uh, is this sort of random or, or consistent across different agencies? Or are there any areas of um, sort of like disparities based on the types of communities where arrests occur right and so that's something we're trying to look at uh, in our Portland area registry which is you know are we sending more more units more people more personnel to certain regions in the city or in the, the metro region than others and are there disparities in sort of how we're doing that and could that explain some of the disparities we see in, in outcomes so I think there's a lot of different potential areas to look at. Um, some of which include any kind of modifiable factors that could be studied, and others are just, you know, perhaps even in a quality improvement lens of of making sure we're doing things equitable.
0: And just to clarify, the study it was it was done from a a database. <clears throat> so correct. One one of the things that we talk about a lot on the show is if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. But certainly, if you've gone through a database, then this is sort of an an aggregate of nationwide providers. So like my system in New Jersey is much different than your system in Oregon, you know, and a system in Kansas is different than a system in Florida. But I one of the things I liked about this is we're just pulling numbers from this actual database. So it kind of eliminates that bias of, well, this system does it this way and this system does it this way. Something that we encounter in New Jersey because we have a multiple tiered response is most calls that go out, there'll be a police response and then there's a BLS response and there's an ALS response. So it was exciting for me to read it because finding a higher number of rescuers correlating to a better discharge um, outcome, you know, with a, a CPC one or two, is very impressive to me. And I know that there's a lot of systems where you know you'll have a fire truck that'll be dispatched and has 17 rescuers on it, and then you know there's a medic truck that has two medics on it, and then there's also a police car and a chief's vehicle and whatever. So talk to me a little bit about the numbers that you found. Is there a a perfect number and is more always better or is it sort of distributed like a bell curve where there's a there's a a sweet spot and then there's too many cooks in the kitchen not enough cooks in the kitchen things like that
1: yeah that's kind of what we thought we might see is that like once you reached a certain number then then more was less beneficial you know in that uh, cohort at that time there weren't a ton with more than say like 11 or 12 providers on scene. And so it's really tough to see at those numbers, but
0: which is reassuring because you don't you don't want to see a clown. Yeah, of the ambulance when you get there.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I mean, there were a few, I, I guess, uh, first i all, I'll talk about what the study wasn't able to look at because I think it sort of gets at this and one of which, you know, the rock studies were great, but they, they sort of capped um, the granularity that they would describe vehicles, right? So like an ALS capable vehicle could have four people but it could be ALS if there was one person, you know, trained or one ALS provider in that rig versus if there were all four, right? And could there in theory be some different, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter, who knows, right? So the tough part about this is if eight providers on scene is better than than four, Does that mean that, you know, seven of those eight can be BLS and there just needs to be sort of one, you know, it doesn't really get into this sort of structure of systems, you know, we're in a dual sort of ALS response system here, but many others have a tiered response system. And then of course, when you get law enforcement responding, know that complicates things too so you know i would say that we thought there might be some sort of like bell curve or or like diminishing returns um but there didn't there there didn't clearly seem to be enough you know it seemed at least grouping the the kind of nine plus providers together they still seem to have a little bit or at least a suggestion of continued you know return on this association with better outcomes
0: and so in in the data you found that seven is around the is the correct number is that about does that kind of support what you found?
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah. Seven. So five to six was the most sort of common. So that was kind of our reference group. And there was really no differences for less than that compared to five to six. And then when you try to adjust for everything, no matter what you you really adjust for, you still saw a pretty significant improvement in seven to eight or nine plus, right? We didn't directly compare that nine group to the seven to eight group, right? So the the magnitude of effect was, was higher for, for nine plus than seven to eight. Um, but, uh, really that kind of cutoff was, let's say around like seven there, which, which sort of, sort of fits nicely. You know, I, I don't know that that's, that's a fairly achievable number, if that makes sense. You know, I think the the other thing we were, um, you know, going into it was like, how high do you kind of go, right? Like, it seems it, at some point it does get to be a little bit, um, hard to generalize if you're suggesting that, you know, you need to have 12 or more people or whatever. Forty-seven <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know if that gets you a little bit more insight.
0: So, and I think it's something that has been discussed with a fair amount of regularity with a lot of providers, right? We always, when you go through ACLS, for example, which, you know, I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but generally speaking, most paramedics at some point have had to go through ACLS, you know, and I, I, there's a bunch of classes that, you know, have been called merit badge courses that people take. And I I think that as a pre-hospital provider, when you're taking ACLS, which is usually designed for in-hospital providers. You know, they'll talk about the ideal build where you have, you know, one person with compressions, one, you have a scribe who's taking notes, one person who's on medications, you know, one person is at the airway and they all have distinct roles. I think it's something that we kind of talk about in the field, but it's not necessarily uh, operationally possible. So I'm, I'm interested, do you feel that this data supports that kind of model where maybe, EMS sort of has to change their ethos and their mindset, because it's very easy for us to look at it and be like, oh, well, of course, that's how they're going to do it in the hospital, you know, but I'm not going to do it that way in the back of my ambulance. There's only one of me. So do you do you think, or I guess, do you hope that this data will sort of start to change that mindset a little bit?
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think that the hope is that if they, especially as, as things shift to more on scene resuscitation in, in different regions, and I'm not sure what y'all do over there, but, you know, does that, does does there then develop more deliberate training around the idea of like, well, if you have eight people, you know, here, best practice would be to have, you know, two up here at the airway, a dedicated CPR quality person, dedicated lead people, either changing off compressions or getting the, the mechanical CPR device there. And then, you know, those, those sorts of roles defined based on the number of folks that are on scene so that you optimize thing, I think is sort of what you're, you're getting at. Cause you know, you could have 10 people on scene, but if they're not, sort of ready to work as a team and kind of in divided roles, that's probably not gonna be beneficial or or like too many cooks in the kitchen if they're all trying to take a leading role, maybe detrimental. Um, so I think there certainly is a balance there, but it's definitely system dependent. You know, that's kind of what we'd like to look at in the future is if you're in a system where you can only get, you know, four to six people on scene if you're lucky or three people if you're in a really rural area or two people, you know, can you use a supraglottic airway, mechanical CPR, and and really negate some of those differences seen than if you had a lot of people. And I think that intuitively makes sense. Like if you knew you had to run a code for 20 minutes, and there's two or four of you, and you don't have mechanical CPR, and, and you're, you know, going to do an endotracheal intubation, and then you're worried about getting access with an IV, you know, it, it, it sort of, Perhaps that is a scenario where doing an IO, a superglottic mechanical CPR really helps to improve outcomes. Whereas if you've got 12 people that show up, you know, maybe that's a scenario where you do really try to get an IV, um, you know, on both arms really quick or something, or you do, you know, use a video laryngoscopy if you have that and you make sure you get an in intracural tube or you, you know, there's like so- sort of, sort of subtle differences that I think would be more set up by system. Uh, based on how many folks you anticipate kind of having on these scenes
0: did when you're looking through your numbers, did any so I, I, I guess the the impetus of this question is there are systems now that have mechanical CPR devices, they have ventilators on the road, so you can you know you can essentially do in theory an arrest completely with two people, mechanical CPR, patients ventilated. Right. did Did your data set factor that in at all, or was it just just regular cardiac arrest survival and the number of providers?
1: yeah i mean we looked at uh so in those rock studies like there was probably less i think it's like three and a half percent mechanical cpr use so it just wasn't you know even though they went through 2015 there's just not enough in there to see um we did look at some of the other like intervention elements you know whether whether it matters or 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 not um but certainly like timing of getting initial access if i recall and timing of you know the first epinephrine dose you know so maybe for non-shockable arrests that had more of an impact um, and even things like timing to the airway, like those sort of timing elements that you might imagine would be factors uh, were uh, shorter for more people on scene, right? But I think one of the bigger differences uh, was the CPR sort of fraction and kind of these sort of elements, right? And so the the reality is it may be a combination of all of those. Um, you know, I think if, if knowing the imp- relative importance of those interventions for outcomes, CPR is pretty much the, the most important thing and maybe time to shock. And so, if I had to put money on what was the most critical difference between those two, it would probably be that.
0: Yeah. And, and like I said, there's been a lot of information that's been coming out over the past five years about cardiac arrest, and especially with, you know, with CARES coming out and the, the Rock Consortium and all those groups. I guess the, the question I want to close on is with the amount of studies and research and data that's being put into cardiac arrest and cardiac arrest survival. As a researcher, do you feel encouraged or discouraged as to how we're moving into, you know, getting more people discharged with CPC one and two scores, or I I guess, I, I guess my question basically is based on, you know, it's, it's futility or, or growth. So do you feel that as an industry, because we're learning more, we're growing, or do you feel that we're just sort of studying what we already know?
1: I think we're I mean, I think we're growing. I think we're we're doing the right thing by studying what we know to see what um, I, what we're doing. If we haven't studied it before, you know, let me say that. But I think for some of these randomized trials, looking at drug dosing, those sorts, you know, I think we're trying to determine does something really work that we're doing? And if it doesn't work, then that does help us in some ways move forward. You know, I think like things, you know, looking at CARES, which is great, you know, they they are expanding their enrollment in terms of number of EMS agencies and other sort of participating sites. And one can imagine those high performing, you know, quality improvement oriented agencies were probably the first to sort of jump into CARES. So as the CARES footprint sort of expands, it, it may not be that survival in some of those high performing agencies hasn't increased over time. It may just be that they're including a broader you know, a uh, more diverse segment of our, our EMS and hospitals in the United States. Um, and I think some of the, you know, newer partners, particularly in Oregon that are joining into CARES, you know, they may be uh, agencies that haven't looked as much at some of these outcomes. They may not have as good of outcomes, but hopefully by getting into CARES, they'll they'll keep moving forward. So I'm somewhat of an optimist that hopefully we're more accurately counting all of our arrests and realizing that perhaps when you look at the The survival and you know the rock cohorts which were like very high functioning you know trial interested ems agencies that may not have been representative of all of the other agencies i'd say it's almost certainly wasn't so i i think there's a a not unreasonable chance that we'll kind of keep moving that needle forward uh, or at least i hope so
0: and if i'm someone who's just getting into the industry give me an elevator pitch about the uh, i guess the results of your data from these papers
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that our main paper was looking at the number of providers on scene. And what we found was that more providers seem to be associated with better outcomes, both survival and neurologic outcome. So the suggestion really is, is that there's something uh, there's some value added to having more bodies on scene to help with these cardiac arrest patients. I mean, they're critically ill patients. And so really, the next step is, can we think of um, either how do we how do we improve that? How do we staff things better so that we do get more folks on scene? Or if we can't do that, how can we have adjuncts like mechanical CPR devices or easier airway adjuncts, easier access adjuncts to reduce the need of the number of bodies on scene so that we can sort of bring up the survival outcomes for smaller agencies, rural agencies, uh, places that may not be able to dispatch as many people to arrest.
0: Awesome. Love to hear it. Dr. Josh Lupton from Oregon, thank you so much for the work that you've done, um, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I know we're getting close to the holidays uh, and the new year and all that, but thanks so much. Happy holidays, happy new year, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again.
2: Absolutely. Happy new year to you.
0: And from the Skeptic's Guide of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Ken Milne is with us. Hi, Dr. Milne. Hello, and thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming on. So what we do toward the end of the year is we want to try and get one big paper that might change practice. And it's really, really interesting. Um, for the uninitiated, the Skeptics Guide is a great podcast. They come out with papers every month that you may not have heard of and go into a really in-depth analysis of these papers. Um, so Dr. Mellon, you found a paper on heads-up C- CPR from 2022. Uh, talk to our listeners about it, and then we'll ask some questions about it.
2: Sure. And I'm actually even nerdier than that. I do a paper a week.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first step, Ken. It's the first step. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, we um, we do a paper a week. And uh, just recently, we had done in 2022, the Moore et al. paper looking at heads up CPR and whether or not it either saved lives
0: or saved lives with good neurologic function. So what were the, when we're working on this paper, what were the the outcomes that they were looking for?
2: So these authors, their primary outcome was, did the patient survive to hospital discharge? And well, that is an important outcome. And I understand the chain of survival. You can't have good neurologic function if you didn't even survive, let alone survive to leave the hospital. I think the really more important patient-oriented outcome would be, did I survive and am I neurologically okay? Am I able to do my activities of daily living? And that was one of their secondary outcomes as opposed to their primary outcome.
0: And certainly something we've looked into in EMS over the past five or 10 years is the, the difference between survival to ER and survival to discharge. Of course, survival to discharge should be the ultimate goal because if someone is alive in the ER and expires on the floor, then what we've done is for not. So for EMS, you know, obviously the you know, first chain um, in in survival when it comes to EMS is doing CPR. We've learned this conventional CPR method: patients lying down, and this heads up method changes that a little bit. So, talk to us about the methods a little bit, what it changes, and then what they found.
2: So, these authors uh, went off some pathophysiology and said, you know, based on you know venous return to the heart and lowering the pressure that we would have to get blood up to the old noodle. What happens if we just elevated the bed or elevated the head? And they had done some animal models that suggested there might be a benefit there. And a lot of research is based on that kind of stuff. You know, we have an idea that it makes some pathophysiologic sense. And then we need to test it and test it in people as opposed to animals. And so they actually did an observational study so it wasn't a randomized control trial. They took a group of uh, patients that had been exposed to this fancy new heads up CPR device. And then they did something called propensity score matching. Oh, yes. Statistical jujitsu. And it's a way to sort of say, listen, we've got these patients We didn't do a randomized control trial, but can we take a whole bunch of other patients that had OCA's, out of hospital cardiac arrest, and can we try to mathematically match, you know, all the demographics and everything we can that we measured? Can we do this propensity score matching? It's sort of like trying to get to an RCT, but of course it can never achieve an RCT level. And I don't want to get too nerdy, but I, oh, I actually do. I love talking nerdy. Oh, please do. They did do. this propensity. Sc- well, you know, I'm, I'm all in now, but they do this propensity score matching, which is totally legitimate to do with the data. Um, and so it tries to minimize some of the biases that could happen with observational studies. And then they matched them up and said, Hey, does this automated controlled elevation of the head and thorax device or the. ACE CPR device. Um, is it any better uh, than what we're already doing? Should I give the spoiler alert? Should I, should I spill the beans right now?
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, what did they find with this study?
2: Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I see you spare no expense on your sound effects for your podcast. Um, very but very yeah. expensive
0: license. You got to buy them every year.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, no, But you know, you don't have to pay licensing for that kind of sound effect stuff. Uh, yeah, no, the key result, that primary outcome, survival to hospital discharge, it was not statistically ben- better. However, the point estimate, 9.5% of people survived with the device versus about 6.5% that were doing conventional CPR. Uh, you know, So that's a 3% difference. You go, well, that would be clinically significant if you were the one that was alive as opposed to dead. Um, but it wasn't statistically different. And f- so the it, it it crossed the line of no difference, but the point estimate favored the device. But again, this is an observational study. And we looked at the, okay, did they survive to the hospital discharge? And this is what we really want to see with good neurologic outcome. Again, no statistical difference. It was down around 5% for both groups or 1 in 20.
0: And just to be clear, it is a separate commercial device. So during doing uh, show prep for this, people asked about lifting the head of the stretcher 15 degrees and applying a piston-driven device. Not the same thing. Um, arguably, I think it, your outcomes would be worse uh, doing that. But this is actually a commercially made and uh, available device. So <clears throat> big, important study. Maybe some, something interesting can come from it over the next couple of years if the study is replicated or if we reevaluate the device. What What do you see? Prognosticate Dr. Milne out two or three years, what, what do you see with this type of device? Do we think that this is something that might make a difference or is it something we can look forward to maybe adjusting and changing? Oh,
2: well, it's all in the name of my show, isn't it? The skeptics guys, yes, not the, not the denialist, because if they come out with good data that says it works, I will accept the claim. And it's not the nihilist. It's not like, I don't think anything can work. And I certainly wouldn't want people to take away from this study that it doesn't work. Cause you know, research doesn't go out to prove something doesn't work. What it does is it starts with a null hypothesis of no superiority. And then it it tries typically to prove that something is superior. And if we can't demonstrate superiority, then we back off and say, okay, I accept the null hypothesis. And so in this case, we can't say this CPR device, this heads up CPR device, this ACE device doesn't work. All we can say is it wasn't demonstrated to work in this observational study. It doesn't mean there couldn't be a signal in all that noise out there if a properly conducted study was done. But the time to accept a claim is when there's sufficient evidence to uh, accept a claim. So you said, well, let's, let's put on my thinking hat three to five years out. I predict right here on your show that we will find it makes no difference. And... <sighs> You know, you know, as well as I do, what, what is the best predictor of outcome for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in adults? Well, it's always time down and oxygen. Yeah, and yeah. Time's yeah. an important factor. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's not an absolute, but it certainly is super important on how quickly you get to the patient. Next, high-quality CPR as a bridge to somewhere. And then finally, if they have a shockable rhythm. Right, if they have a shockable rhythm, electricity is so important for these out of hospital cardiac arrests. If you have a shockable rhythm, if you don't have a shockable rhythm,
0: yeah, how much to work with there? Yeah. You know,
2: you know, yeah, and and so and like I said, you know, CPR has to be a bridge to you know getting that defibrillation happening, high quality CPR, and then you know maybe getting them to definitive care. But again, if you don't have that shockable rhythm, the outcomes. You know, we've seen over the years, and this is what informs my skepticism, is all the ACLS drugs that we thought could work, right? We had, mm, let's start with um, betrullium, magnesium, lidocaine, you know, they've taken those away and then, okay, well, what about, what about epinephrine? Well, we had the big paramedic two trial and yes, you can get more ROSC, but you didn't end up saving more people with good neurologic function and then also this year and i this is one of the studies i was going to pitch to you actually was um the calcium uh study for giving calcium to out of hospital cardiac arrest that was the coca trial and it was at the coca coca's for Ocas, and uh you know they made it for you i know just for my (laughs) my type of brain but just you know, you think, oh, well, the heart needs calcium and calcium's important for muscle contraction. So it makes physiologic sense. And then they did a study and it didn't work. In fact, they did worse, I think for the point of estimates, of um, the people that got calcium. So, you know, I think that we can make inter- incremental improvements and make sure that we're doing things correctly and stuff like that. But the big picture is, if you don't have a shockable rhythm and you don't get to the person quickly enough and by standard CPR doesn't happen to be a bridge to somewhere, all these things that, you know, putting the head of the bed up or using this special fancy device that does that for you, or, you know, all these other fancy drugs that we have really haven't panned out. So, um, I'm a, I'm a optimistic skeptic. I'm a, positive skeptic again, the the pragmatic skeptic, (laughs) but my mind is open, right? My mind is open, not just some of my brain falls out, but it's open to say, listen, if you, um, if you present me with convincing evidence, absolutely. I'll change my position. That's what we should do as scientists and sort of as clinicians, we want to make sure that patients get the best care from the moment they, you know, reach out nine, one, one, pre-hospital care to in the department, emergency department care, to inpatient, to discharge, to rehab. We're all on team patient. That's what I like to say. And you need every single link in that chain to be giving the best possible care they can so that we're all on team patient and the patient does the best
0: possible. I can't think of a better place to end it. Uh, Dr. Mellon, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, for the guys that are new to the show, Dr. Mellon was gracious enough to be one of the first uh, guests that we had on this show. We're very lucky to have him back. Um, he's become a friend of the show. He's become a resource for Danny and I talking about things. So Ken, happy holidays. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you whenever you come back.
2: My pleasure and uh, stay nerdy and be skeptical.